0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have the epic confrontation between Yaakov and Asav, the two brothers. There's a a wrestling match with an angel, and there's this amazing diplomacy, which... The rabbis used as the model to deal with all sorts of critical negotiations in terms of the welfare of the fate of the Jewish people. They use this encounter between Yaakov and Esav as the blueprint. So there's endless historical value in digging in and, and studying this. But the aspect that I want to focus in on is we know that the sar asav this ministering um angel of Asav, rashi says very clearly that this is the yetzahara this is the evil inclination as such everything is worlds within worlds we just said that that this encounter is a model for how we deal with different governments but also it's the model for how to deal with your own negative inclination in other words Each person is a miniature of the universe, and so it makes sense that this same story should be a guide for how we should deal with ourselves, and how the nation of Israel should deal with other nations. Those aren't two separate topics. If you imagine a pebble being thrown into a pond and the reverberating circles, it's just a organic continuity that's taking place, that the struggle within manifests itself as the struggle without. In fact, there's a very interesting comment that Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that if you look at the wars that are going on in the world between nations, any, any nations, that those dynamics are mirrored within the family. That, isn't that interesting? Within your family structure itself. So what's the relationship? They seem like, well, what is a, a war between, say, Saudi Arabia and Yemen have to do with You know, me and my cousin, right? And yet, the idea is that everything is worlds within worlds. So you've got yourself, you've got your family, you've got your community, you've got your nation, and then you've got the other nations of the world. And that there is a continuity between all of those things. And that the energy reverberates inwardly, outwardly, and everything like that. An interesting perspective, but again, the idea is that in this battle between Yaakov and Asav, we have a roadmap for how to deal with ourselves and how to approach other nations in terms of diplomacy and making peace. And before we start to get into all the particulars and all the strategies of how to kind of deal with our own negative inclination, I just want to begin where the Parsha itself begins, because there's something that I think is absolutely fascinating. Again, on the level of diplomacy, but also, I think, very heartbreaking as, as well. So if you remember, just to set the scene, last week's Parsha, Yaakov has been dwelling in the house of Lavan for 20 years. And again, Levin is just the worst of the worst. You know, kabbalistically we say that he's the reincarnation of the snake from the Garden of Eden, and then becomes reincarnated again as Bilaam, right, who tries to curse the Jewish people. So, so Levin is really just the bottom, and Yaakov Avinu has to go really to ground zero, so to speak, of of evil, and 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 combat that, and that he actually leaves with his family intact, with his possessions intact, and that in itself is an epic struggle and an epic escape. And it should end there. And yet the Parsha ends with Yaakov now on his way to Israel being told that Asav, who promised to kill him approximately 34 years ago, is standing there with 400 soldiers coming toward him. So, and that's how last week's Parsha ends. So it's really, it's, it's quite intense. You know, we have an expression, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Like you can imagine a fish flopping around in a frying pan and it manages to jump out. So it thinks it's saved itself and then it goes right into the fire itself. So this is Yaakov, so to speak. He's gotten out of the frying pan. He's escaped Levin. And now he's facing this fire of Esav. So Yaakov sends angels to Esav with a message. And the commentators say, not, not just any messengers, actual angels. It says, Malachim like actual angels, which gives you an idea of Yaakov's mastery of the material and spiritual worlds that he's actually able to send angels on his behalf in order to deliver the, these words. And we know that Yaakov's state of mind is, is very, very troubled. And one of the things that that's so beautiful and so you, where you really see the truth of the Torah, I mean, we say Torah temet, the Torah is truth. So we know the Torah is true on every, every conceivable level. But in terms of the humanity of it, you see the truth of it as well. And what I mean by that is, it says, there's a mystical teaching, that on the Kiseyakov, which is the throne of glory in heaven, that Yaakov's face is in, is engraved on the throne of glory in heaven. So it shows you how Yaakov is like just kind of like the pinnacle that, that human spirituality can can reach. And yet, and yet, it says that Yaakov was afraid. And this is what I'm talking about, the truth. Because the, the amazing aspect of the Torah is it never it never fails to convey the actual humanity the real-life humanity of all of these amazingly great people. Like here we're being told Yaakov Avinu's face is on the, the throne of glory in heaven, and yet the, the, the Torah itself says that he was frightened by the fact that asaph was there with 400 soldiers, and that he feared that asaph was going to kill him, as he promised to do, by the way, and his family. So he's about the people Israel, really. You know, you talk about genocide. The people Israel are about to be faced with genocide right now. And it's not, I don't think, a misuse of the term. Right at the roots of the people itself. Which Levin tried to do as well, by the way. And, and now there's another little bit that the Torah adds, which I just think is just Awesome. It says that Jacob was frightened and distressed. And maybe you think those are two different kind of like iterations of what it means to be scared. Well, frightened means one thing. Distressed means another thing. And there are commentators who explain it that way. Just two different wavelengths of of really kind of being stressed out, to, to say the least. But there's another way to read that passage, which is very beautiful to me, and and I, I personally can relate to this, which is that he was frightened, and it distressed him that he was frightened. Meaning to say, if a person has total faith in God, then nothing should scare you. If you know that God is good, then, and you believe in God, with all of your heart and you know that God is good then why should anything scare you in life nothing should scare you in fact um when it talks about the uh the the people who were the 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 doulas right the the sort of the birthing coaches <laughs> uh uh, in, in Egypt, of, of, of the, the Jewish people, while they were giving all these children, Paro at the time told them, instructed them. And we know um, that this was Miriam and Yocheved, right? This was Moshe's mother and Moshe's uh, older sister. These were the two chief birthing mothers in, of the Jewish people in Egypt. Paro gives them strict instructions to kill all the Jewish boys when they're born, right, right then and there. And it says that they didn't listen to Paro and that they feared God. And I heard Reb Shlomo give the most amazing explanation. What does it mean to be God-fearing, based on this? And it's just you just have to love the clarity of this. To be God-fearing means that you're not afraid of human beings. that just, uh, like, there's worlds and worlds contained in that simple explanation. What does it mean to be God-fearing? You're not afraid of other people. That's what it means. And so, here is Yaakov, and it says he was afraid because there's Asa with his army of 400 soldiers and it distressed him. It distressed him that he was afraid. Because it suggested to him, maybe there's part of me that, um, that is lacking in belief. Or maybe there's part of me which doesn't merit full protection. That's maybe even a more conventional way of explaining why he was distressed. And he gives different explanations, which is that, God, you've been so kind to me. Maybe all the blessings that you've given me have come out of, so to speak, my heavenly bank account. Meaning to say, all the merits that I've accumulated, all the mitzvot that I've accumulated, which should be a shield for me in this instance. Maybe you have paid me for all of the good things that I've done with all of your kindness, God, with so much of your kindness, that my merits have been diminished. Therefore, my shield has been diminished, because you've already given me my reward. And therefore, I don't have any protection against Ace of right now, because you've already given me my reward. So I've used it all up in advance. When I need it the most right now, I've already cashed in all of my protection. This was, it says, this was one of Yaakov's fears, or Yaakov fears, maybe I've sinned. I don't know what I did, but maybe I sinned. And because I've I've done that, I've done something wrong, that I, I don't merit the protection that should be coming my way right now. Now, what I think is so awesome about these reactions is it's lacking... A very big reaction that I think is so common among all of us, right? Which is the following. You never see Yaakov saying this. God, why are you doing this to me? And I think that's really, really interesting. You know, because Yaakov really is our model. And Yaakov is our model in so many ways. And I I, want to just tell you something that I think is really, like, very interesting. There are a lot of glamorous things. uh, I'm talking about in terms of, like, just epic, spiritual, like, amazing things that you see among, that you see by Avraham, that you see by Yitzhak, that you don't see as much by Yaakov. I'll give you an example it says that Avraham was thrown into a furnace and that he escaped this, like, you can't escape a furnace. If you're thrown into, you know what a furnace is? It's like flames, like like roaring flames. It says Nimrod threw Avraham, because remember, Nimrod was really considered the first dictator in human civilization. And... Abraham was threatening his rule by suggesting there's only one god and only one power in the world which means a, a power higher than Nimrod. So what he's what Abraham was doing with his his kind of like monotheistic kind of mission was uprooting the the premise of Nimrod's dictatorship. If, if you think there's only one God, then who is Nimrod, really? So Nimrod's got to get rid of Avraham. So he throws him into this furnace, and Avraham just walks out alive. And there's an amazing story behind that, but that just, just in terms of just epicness. And that's just one example. He also leads a, a, a military campaign against the powers of the world, Avraham, and is successful. And then Yitzchak, Yitzchak does the most amazing thing ever. He says to Abram, tie me tighter when he's on the altar. I don't want to move so that maybe if I, in fear, jerk my head or something like that, I'll, I'll invalidate this perfect sacrifice that we're offering to God. And now you have Yaakov. And Yaakov is mostly dealing and I with the day-to-day challenges of life. Kind of different from Abraham and Yitzchak. And yet we say that Yaakov, the sages point to him as the exemplar of spirituality and spiritual greatness. And of course, remember, it's not him and not Avraham and Yitzchak. The way to understand that, I think, is to understand that Yaakov is the culmination of Avraham and Yitzchak. That's, I think, the proper way to look at it. But they point to him as the culmination. Right? You could have said something else. The sages say that since we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, that all of the nations are going down in terms of levels of spirituality. Now, Reb Shlomo added a very nice sort of reframing of that which is that yes we're going down in terms of spirituality since the generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai that's true however each generation is also getting closer to Mashiach right so you've got kind of like a a counterbalance going on there but nonetheless I I point to that teaching because the sages could have said that from Avraham you're also going down To Yitzchak, to to Yaakov, I mean, it's all good, it's all great, but you're going down. But they don't say that. They say you're going up, and that Yaakov is the culmination. So now let's put these two things together. Yaakov is the culmination, and really the stuff of his life is dealing within the day-to-day aspects of life. And let me just flesh that out, because in the Chumash, Yaakov is absolutely unique in that you see one person in the context of every aspect of the type of relationships that we have to go through in life. You see him as a brother. You see him as a son. You see him as a father. You see him as a grandfather. You see him as an employee. You see him as a husband. And in each area, of those realms, all of the challenges that he's facing. And so I wanna just really say outright, really what I'm trying to get to. So that's just background for, for this thought right now. You see what it is? If someone goes out into battle and they're risking their life in a war type situation, well, that's very dangerous, very brave, and it's life and death. The person goes out into battle, and let's say they shoot the enemy, and they're successful. They, they They survive this battle. They've eliminated the enemy. Well, they don't have to deal with the enemy anymore. So while it seems like Much more dangerous, and the stakes are like way higher. Nonetheless, listen clearly once you kill the enemy, you don't have to deal with the enemy anymore. Now, let's contrast that to Yaakov. He has these ongoing situations where every day brings a new challenge with the same people (laughs) in other words if you're in an office situation a difficult office situation and let's say you have a a struggle with one of your coworkers or with your boss and maybe let's say you even resolve it favorably well guess what the next day you're with that same person again and the next day and the next day the next day you're still with your wife or your husband or with your child or with your neighbor Do do you understand In other words, there's a level of challenge that Yaakov has to deal with in the more mundane aspects of our life. But in a way, these aspects are even more challenging because they don't go away. Because you have to keep on maintaining them day to day. And that requires an even greater level of spiritual mastery. So it's just a a perspective and an appreciation of what it means to maintain relationships and maintain them successful. That it's not a small thing, it's a very great thing. If you can have shalom bias, if you can have good relations with your wife or your husband, with your children, with the people that you work work with, with your neighbors, with your community, if you can maintain these positive relationships on an ongoing basis, This is very meaningful. And it may not be glamorous in the way that we've talked about being thrown into a furnace and walking out alive. But from the perspective of the sages, in a way, it's greater. Because it's ongoing. It's not a one-time affair. Okay. So now that we're talking about Yaakov as a master of maintaining these relationships... I want to return back to the scene that we set up initially. Yaakov is now sending a message to Esav, who has 400 soldiers waiting for him. And the last thing, the last thing that Esav told him was, I'm going to kill you. So now let's try to figure out what message is Yaakov going to convey to his brother? And, you know, if you asked me, if I had to guess, or if I were in that situation, I think this is what I would say, okay? I think I would say, um, uh, please let there be peace between us. We could play with the wording of it, but I think that would be the, the message that I would send. Or, um, whatever happened in the past, I apologize for, perhaps but I want to be friends moving forward. Or can't we resolve this? So all those are in the same area. They're all in the same spirit, right? And I think that would be the normal intuitive message to send to someone who's coming at you with 400 soldiers, okay? Listen, I'm going to read from the Torah now. Listen to the message that Yaakov actually sends. And remember, we're talking about the greatest master right now, because I think that you'll agree when you hear it, it's really surprising what he says. And there's a lot of commentary on each of these words, but I'm just asking you right now to just listen to the simplicity of the words themselves, okay? So Yaakov says to the angels, Thus shall you say to my lord, to Asaph, So said your servant Yaakov, I have, so, I have sojourned with Lovin, and have lingered until now. Right? Because it's been about 34 years. I have acquired, here's the message, I have acquired oxen and donkeys, flocks, servants, and maidservants, And I am sending to tell my Lord to find favor in your eyes. So, what? No message about friendship. No message about peace. No apology. He's basically saying, here's my brother, brother Asav. I've got a lot of stuff. I'm really rich. <laughs> That's the message he sends. Isn't that, isn't that surprising? Isn't that interesting? What was he hoping? Now, clearly, clearly, he knows that this is a life and death situation. How? This is our next question. How does this message serve Yaakov's interest? How does this message help save Yaakov's life? Just telling Asaph that I'm really rich. Because he he knows that Asaph is also really rich. So Asaph doesn't need his money. So I want to say the following. And this is what I mean that I think, this is my idea, but I, I I, think this is going on, on on at least one level. And I think it's a little heartbreaking. Okay? I think that what Yaakov was trying to say was very, very psychological. And that he was saying, Asav, you don't have to be jealous of me anymore. Because do you remember when we were growing up And you were just like into like all the physical and material stuff of the world. And I wanted something a little bit higher, right? I was dedicating myself to spirituality and serving God and how mom and dad loved me more because of it. You remember all of that and how you gave up your birthright to me because the whole idea of spirituality to you didn't mean anything, but then you sort of like regretted it a little bit when you saw that I got the blessing and then you kind of of second guessed perhaps whether there was something to that and you knew that I was now really the master of that and you hated me for it? Remember all that, how you hated me and you were jealous of me because of me wanting something a little bit higher in life? Well, guess what? Now I'm just a rich guy just like you. It's been 34 years and I've thrown all that stuff away. And I'm sending you a message to tell you I got a lot of stuff. And that's where I'm at. Just having a lot of stuff. Wow. Right? You hear? Do you hear? And do you hear the brilliance of this? Do you hear the brilliance of this? Because by telling him, I'm a rich guy just like you, now Esau says, I don't have to be jealous of him anymore, so what do I have to kill him for? He's come down to my level. So he's just like me. So I've won. At this existential battle between the two of us, I've won. So what do, what do I have to kill him for? Because he's already dead. You know, humming the story of... Purim, his Haman wanted to kill all the Jews. But the story of Hanukkah, right, which we're about to celebrate. Hanukkah, the Greeks didn't want to kill us. They just said, just give up that Judaism, that nasty Judaism. Just give it up. And we said, if we give that up, we're dead. We can't do that. So, you know, there's two, there's two ways to kill someone. You can, you can end their physical life, or you can crush their dreams and crush their spirituality and snuff out their soul. One of the things that Rev. Shlomo used to say, he, and it would be like a plea to people, he would say to someone, why are you clipping his wings? Like, why are you trying to cut off that person's wings? Meaning to say that if you see that someone is striving to be a little bit higher, like, w- w- why discourage them? And I think the one of the examples that he gave was if someone is like, sort of like, routinely late for shul, and then they show up early one day. And the people go, what are you showing up early? You're the light guy. Like here a person's trying to improve themselves and what are you doing? Or or someone's trying to maybe not speak Lashon Hara or something like that. You know, I've seen this many times in my life. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it just, it amazes me. Where someone begins to say something negative and then stops themselves. Because they realize, like, what am I doing? I, I, I shouldn't say such a thing. And then the people around them go, no, come on. You started to say it. You got to finish. Come on. Like, you pointed the gun to your head. You've got to kill yourself now. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? So Yaakov, in just sort of like extolling his own personal wealth, to Ace of, I think, brilliantly, brilliantly, was sending the message to, to Ace of, I've already given up on all those dreams of wanting to be higher. You don't have to kill me. You don't have to be jealous of me because I'm already dead. So anyway, I want to move on. I want to move on. And just maybe go a little bit deeper now, because how can we use that own information that we just talked about in terms of our own management of our own yetsaharas, right? So they say that in dealing with your own yetsahara, that you should try to fly under the radar with it. And meaning to say, if you sort of like create and talk about a new goal that you have in terms of spirituality and you sort of broadcast it. The Yatzer goes, oh man, <laughs> it goes into attack mode. <laughs> like, oh no, you don't. Oh, you're starting Daf Yomi today or you're, you're going to start doing this or that, you know? No, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. But if a person is a little bit more under the radar is a little more quiet about what it is that they're trying to pursue. Remember, the sages say, speak little, do much. And that's especially true when it comes to achieving spiritual goals. If you have a goal for yourself, don't talk about it so much. Just do it. And if you can not even talk about it at all, that's even better. Because you don't want to arouse that of within you, so to speak, which is going to go into attack mode. There's an image that I always kind of return back to. People call it, it's an English expression. They say, you know, when they talk about the jealousy that some people have over other people's accomplishments, they talk about it as crabs in a barrel. What, What does that mean? So apparently this has been observed over the years. If you put a bunch of crabs on the bottom of a barrel, they'll start to try to climb out. And what they've observed is the following behavior, that the crabs on the bottom of the barrel will reach up and pull the crab that's trying to climb out down to the bottom again. And so sometimes you see that sometimes you see that and that works on the spiritual level as well as what i'm trying to say where someone sees someone else trying to improve themselves and just pulls them down i'll give you the exception to this rule this rule it says that jealousy among sages among scholars increases wisdom Jealousy among scholars increases wisdom. So what what does that mean? That means that if, if you're actually a scholar, meaning to say that if you're beyond jealousy, so you just want to serve God with all of your heart and everything like that, you just want to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And you see that someone is doing something that you're not doing, then you want to do it too. Because it's sort of like, wow, you're learning that holy book, I want to learn that book. And then you start learning that book. So do you see how jealousy can be sublimated? And I love this word sublimate. If you don't know it, it has the word sublime in it. Okay, sublimate means to take a negative quality within yourself and to sort of like redirect it so that it actually becomes a force for good. So jealousy can be sublimated. Jealousy can be a motivation for you to want to do even more in terms of your own closeness with God. But it's but the sages say very interestingly: jealousy among scholars increases wisdom. In other words, to be eligible for this type of uh, personality improvement. You yourself have to already be holding on the level of a scholar in order to be able to handle and redirect this type of jealousy in a spiritually productive, positive way. Okay. So I wanna keep on I want to keep on moving on. And I wanna talk about I wanna talk about this wrestling match between Yaakov and Aesov. And just in terms of the mechanics of the, the story itself, of the events that took place, it's just fascinating to think of it in this way. Everybody knows that the, the night before Yaakov finally has his epic confrontation with of himself, that he wrestles this person that just appears out of nowhere. Yaakov is all alone. He's sent his family in two different directions, So that if Esau attacks one camp, at least the other camp will survive. So so with that in mind, Yaakov is all alone. And the Torah just says just very abruptly, Esau was uh, rather, the Torah says very abruptly, Yaakov was all alone and a man shows up. Who is this man? It doesn't say. And then they wrestle all night long. And it says that the dust from their wrestling match reaches all the way to the throne of glory. And then the commentators say that this was the Sar Shel Asav, the ministering angel of Asav, that Yaakov was wrestling with. So this is fascinating because before their physical meeting, the next day when they become face-to-face Body-wise, you have this meeting that precedes that where Yaakov is fighting the forces of evil itself. Fascinating, right? So there's a spiritual meeting and battle that takes place before the physical meeting. And... I'd like to suggest one thing, and I'm going to throw out a, a bunch of things about the wrestling match in a moment. But i just suggest one thing that came to me, which is that before Esav essentially abandons his mission and the role that he could have played among the Jewish people, remember, Esav was supposed to marry Leah, and Yaakov was supposed to marry Rachel. And when Yaakov acquires the birthright, all of a sudden he also requires, rather, when he acquires the birthright, he simultaneously acquires all of the work that Asav was supposed to do in this world, spiritually speaking. Which is why, in that context, why Yaakov now has to marry Leah and Rachel. Do you understand? Before, Esav was supposed to marry Leah, and Yaakov is supposed to marry Rachel. But now that Yaakov has the birthright, and Esav is no longer in the picture, people of Israel speaking at this point, now Yaakov has to do all the work of Esav, and also has to marry Leah. So this is fascinating because I would like to suggest in taking on all of the work that of had to do, he also had to take on a little bit of of himself. And with that in mind, what I would like to suggest, some of the commentators say that what was this wrestling match? So I told you like the, the, the normative way, of understanding it, is that it was a wrestling match with with the angel of Asaph. But there are those who say that Yaakov spent that entire night wrestling with himself. Now, how do you reconcile these two opinions? That Yaakov is wrestling with himself on the one hand, and Yaakov is wrestling with this foreign entity, the angel of Asaph. And what I would like to suggest, based on what I was just saying, is the following. Here's a reconciliation. That in taking on the job of Esav in this world, Yaakov had to take on a little bit of himself. And so Yaakov was wrestling with himself. But what was he wrestling with? To get the final aspect of Esav out of himself. So that's another way of understanding this wrestling match. Now, I heard something amazing. You ready for this? In the name of the Rashbam, he's a a Rishon, so that's going back a thousand years, and a very, very amazing, very, you know, great commentator of Torah. He says something radical. You know, people, this is not a, you don't hear this opinion a lot. You ready for this? That the angel was wrestling Yaakov, because Yaakov wanted to run away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And this is said by Arishon, Arishon, one of our great, great Torah commentators. And that the angel was making sure that Yaakov confronted this very scary situation, this very, very scary situation. And again, here you see the humanity of our Torah giants. And it's another, it's just another compelling example of the truth of the Torah, like I was mentioning earlier. Because you see what it is? If you were writing the Torah just as an advertisement, And as opposed to recording true, actual events, which we say, of course, the Torah is, you wouldn't include unflattering things about your greatest exemplars. You would would edit them out. You simply would not include them. And the fact that the Torah includes all the flaws of all of the great people, is evidence that these were real people. And of course, it's instruction for us of how to address our flaws and our weaknesses. And so so this story of Yaakov is just this amazing example for us to be courageous in our own lives and not to run and to face whatever challenge we have to face head on. And it will always be scary, as it was to Yaakov, as it was to Yaakov. Okay, so now they're wrestling with each other. And there's a special moment after the wrestling match, a couple of special moments. So the first special moment that I want to touch on is Yaakov says something like, wouldn't occur to me to, to, to ask this question to the person or the spirit that I'm wrestling with all night. But, but Yaakov asks, what is your name? And the answer is even more fascinating. The angel of asaph says back, why do you ask me my name? <laughs> and so... You could, you could like read that as being very evasive. What do you expect from the, you know, the incarnation of evil? What, of course, it's going to be evasive and not helpful. It's going to say, why do you ask me my name? But I saw from one of the commentators, so I, I, an amazing, amazing, amazing answer. Listen to this. That the angel was not being evasive at all. That he was actually giving giving a very straight answer to Yaakov's question. That the name of the angel is, why are you asking me my name? That's his name. Why are you asking me my name is his name. Now we got to figure that out because that's a weird name, right? Like, What kind of name is that? well it actually makes tremendous sense and there's a very big practical lesson in this for us you see the idea is is that the etzaharah the, the negative inclination doesn't want us to think too much it doesn't want us to investigate the truth it doesn't want us to ask ourselves the big questions Like, why is there a world? Why am I alive? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? You know, I think the whole question of evolution is very, very interesting. Darwin suggests that all of life came from a single-celled organism and that we evolved from that single-celled organism. So... So that's all well and good. First of all, it doesn't answer the question of how did that single-celled organism get here to begin with and who created time and space for it to exist in. (laughs) It It doesn't address those questions. But even more interestingly, it just tells us how we got to be the way we are as opposed to new Now that I'm here, what am I supposed to do with my life? And, you know, it's nice to hear a compelling scientific explanation of how I got to be here. But you know something? That doesn't get me to tomorrow. What gets me to tomorrow is why am I here and what am I supposed to do with my life now that I'm here? I mean, the how is, as Reb Shlomo would say, sweet and cute. But I need the why. I need the why. So the angel says back to Yaakov, why are you asking me my name? In other words, don't get into the whys. Because if you start answering those questions in your search for truth, then what happens to me? Like, I'm just supposed to block you from that. You're just going to defeat me if you start asking the wise. So therefore, the name of the angel of the Sahara is, why are you asking me my name? In other words, don't investigate further. Don't do it. Don't do it. But of course we're supposed to And that's why we're here, is in order to do that, to ask exactly why, why, why is there a world? Why is there a me? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? This is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And by the way, you see this pattern in the Torah. It's not just here. When Moshe Rabbeinu shows up to take the Jews out of Egypt, the first thing that Pharaoh... Does the very first thing that he does is he says, You know, up until now, I've given you a certain amount of straw and you've had to make this amount of bricks. And it's such a high quota of bricks, you couldn't even meet your quota of bricks when I gave you the straw. And now that this troublemaker who wants to take you out of Egypt and take you out of slavery and get you the Torah at Mount Sinai has shown up. You know how we're going to deal with this? Now all of you have to find your own straw and make the same number of bricks. You couldn't even make that number of bricks when I was giving you the straw. Now you've got to get your own straw and make the same number of bricks. In other words, how does Pharaoh counteract freedom? How does the forces of darkness counteract the forces of redemption, I'm going to give you so much work that you can't even think about these things anymore. I'm going to make you so busy and so preoccupied and so stressed out, you're not going to have the the bandwidth in order to concentrate on why you're here to begin with. Because you're just going to be so busy surviving that you're not going to be able to have the luxury or what you consider the luxury of thinking about these things anymore. And I'll tell you something, just to relate it to today's day and age. We've got so much time on our hands, relatively speaking, relative to earlier generations. And, you know, it's it's a weird way to describe it, but... I almost feel that we're living in a dictatorship of being entertained. Like, like it's, it's, it's like, let's just keep, just keep dancing, keep dancing, keep the lights flashing, keep the sensation that you're in the middle of a casino in Las Vegas going with all of the bells and the ringing and the sound of money coming out of every you know, slot machine all around you. Just keep that going so that everyone's head is just turning and distracted and everything like that. Don't put any clocks, you know, there are no clocks in a casino because they don't want you to keep track of time. Don't keep track of the fact that the clock is ticking and we've got a certain number of years in this world. Don't keep track of that. And then maybe, 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 I can make it so that you never get out of the casino. How about eight more streaming channels? How about how about more TV than you can possibly watch? And it's going to be better than all of the TV of the last 50 years all at once. How about that? How about You're never going to have to leave your house again and interact with another person. Lest you learn something from your human encounters, right? We'll just keep everything so that it's going to be so good. You don't even have to leave your house for food anymore. You've got 10 different companies competing with each other with discounts and coupons to bring the food to you so that you never have to leave your room. So... So one of the ways of evaluating how much good is available is by looking at how much challenge there is in your current situation, because there's going to be a correlation between the degree of challenge and the amount of good that's on the table. Right? Like, let's just revisit the idea You've got more work than you ever had in your life. you got to get the straw and make the bricks. But what's the counterbalance? Moshe Rabbeinu is there to take you out of Egypt and give you the Torah. So if we've got all these societal forces today overwhelming us to this extent, it must mean that there's a level of good that's available to enter the world that's equally epic. It has to be, it has to be. Which means that the to the extent that we exert ourselves right now, there will be tremendous benefit for ourselves in the world. Okay, so now I wanna go on to this next, this next idea from the wrestling match which is seemingly, coincidentally, seemingly, overly coincidentally, and we're going to see in a moment that it's not a coincidence, okay? Seemingly, the angel of Esav, right, says, you have to let me go because it's my turn right now to praise God in the heavenly choir. And according to this, this angel that was that was wrestling with, with Yaakov never had its turn up in heaven to praise God. And so, so it's got to go, because now it's dawn, and it's got an appointment in heaven to praise God. So this angel is keeping this appointment, right? But isn't it weird that it just happens to be that this angel, that today is its day, that it's got an appointment with God to praise, to praise Him in the in the in the heavenly spheres, and it's just got to go? Like that's like a little bit weird. So the explanation is is that it's not a coincidence at all. What you have here is a direct application of cause and effect. Now, I'll explain it. Listen, listen to this. What was the angel of asaph doing? What is opposition? Because it stands for opposition in general. What is opposition doing in the world at all? It's only there so that we can face it and overcome it. And then it's accomplished its mission. In other words, very fundamental idea here. We don't say that there are two powers in the world. The premise of Judaism, the foundation of Judaism, is that there's only one power, which means there's not God and the devil battling it out, who's going to win, right? That's another religion. That's not our religion. Our religion is that all that exists is God. God is the only power. And we don't say our religion is is better than your religion because our God is stronger than your God. We say there is only one God. There is no other power. So if that's the case, what is evil doing in this world at all? And the, the answer is evil works for God. Meaning to say, meaning to say, that when the Satan, so to speak, Remember, it says in Gomorrah Baba, Baba Basra that, that the, all, all forces of opposition are one force. It's just one spectrum. So the Yetzhahara, the negative inclination that attacks us individually, the Malachamavis, right, the, the angel of death which attacks our body, and the Satan, which is the heavenly accuser, it's all one thing. It's one energy. But we're just giving it different names because it's operating at different stratas of reality. One is working in heaven, one is working against our soul, one is working against our body, but it's all the same force. Now, this force works for God, and I'm going to tell you how in a moment. But the point is the following, that when this energy shows up to a person, it wants us to say no to it. That's the giant new idea here. And it says that when the Satan comes to a person and you say yes to it, meaning to say a person gives into t- temptation, that it rips its clothes and cries. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. Okay? Why? Because it wants you to say no to it because it works for God. Okay, so why is the forces of opposition in this world at all? Well, that's a very big question, but let me just give you a simple model, okay? The idea is like this. God, from the beginning of creation, had in mind a perfect world. And we're in the process of that world seeing the light of day. In other words, the world itself is still being created. It's not finished yet. The world is not finished yet. And that's the glory of a human being, is that God made us partners with him in terms of finishing the world. And that's what we're doing with acts of love and the Torah and the mitzvahs and everything like that. These are the vehicles through which we're finishing the world as partners with God. Okay, now listen carefully, because here's how it breaks down. Opposition comes to a person. A person faces that opposition, and by overcoming it, emits light from their soul that fills the world and brings the world that much closer to the redemption, to completion. That's it. I'm going to say it again, because this is the basic model. We're driving toward redemption, okay? But the road to redemption is filled with obstacles. When you face an obstacle in your life, it's so that you can admit light from your soul in order to light up the world that much more and to bring the world that much closer to the fullness of light that we call the perfection of the world itself. So, it's not a coincidence when this angel, which represents evil, is, represent, is, is, is defeated by Yaakov, and then all of a sudden says, I got to go to heaven to praise God, because its mission is now complete. It was only here to be defeated. And once it's defeated... It's done what it was supposed to do, and now it can go up and report the good news. I did it. You did it, God. We did it, humanity. We did it. And that's what's being played out here. So you have in this wrestling match, a microcosm of the entire spiritual work of humanity, till Mashiach comes, is happening in this wrestling match. And evil itself is acknowledging that I was only here to be overcome. And now that you used me and harnessed the energy of opposition appropriately, now that you faced opposition and overcame it, which is the only reason why I was here to begin with, I can report to God the good news that you did your job, I did my job. Praise God in his oneness. (laughs) That's what it is. That's what it is. Okay, and now I want to go to the actual meeting between Yaakov and Esav. And I want to talk about this word that the rabbis are disagreed about 2,000 years ago and the questions are still, the question marks are still floating in the air as to what happens when Yaakov and Esav themselves, these personalities, these human beings that actually existed, when they actually see each other eye to eye, face to face. Because it says that Asav kisses Yaakov and cries on his neck. And now we've got two very different opinions about what actually happened. The first opinion is that Asav forgave Yaakov. And that he says to him, if you look in the Rashi, he says to him, keep what you have. And if you look at the Rashi there, it says, keep the blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. In other words, this naughty issue that was between them, Asav straight on addresses it and says, let's forget about it. It's yours. You have it. It's yours. Don't worry about it. Amazing. So this is the version where Esav genuinely forgives Yaakov and kisses him and cries. And it's this beautiful moment of reconciliation. And now we have another opinion, which is that the battle doesn't end. And the reason why we're even suggesting this second opinion is because there's a scribal tradition, and this is rare in the Torah, by the way, to put dots over a single word. It usually doesn't happen, almost never. But there are dots over this word for kiss, which is the rabbi's, the sages' way of saying, look more deeply into this word, because this word isn't telling the full story. And according to this version... The enmity, the battle between the two of them persists and doesn't end. And according to this version, the Midrash teaches that Esav went to bite the juggler vein of Yaakov to kill him. And that was the kiss on his neck. And there was a miracle, and Yaakov's neck turns into marble. Esav breaks his teeth and cries from the pain. So when it says that Esav kissed his neck and cried, a whole nother story is being conveyed. And perhaps there's a reconciliation between the two of them. Perhaps you could say that in the macro level, which was expressed by the wrestling match between the two of them. In the macro level, in the end, there's going to be peace. But in the here and now, till we get to the end, there's still going to be this this struggle between the two of them. And perhaps that's what's going on here, that it's both. It is a kiss. Because in the end, there is going to be this reconciliation. But till we get to the end, there's going to be this level of opposition, perhaps. I'm I'm suggesting that as a reconciliation between the two opinions. But I want to say something else. And again, on a practical level, because this is talking about our own struggle with our own darker inclinations. okay. And we'll begin to wrap it up, and this this will be really what I want to finish with. You see, the kiss of Esav is deep. It's deep. It's deep. If we look at Esav as the forces of opposition, sometimes the forces of opposition want to kill you. And sometimes the forces of opposition find a different way to kill you. Meaning to say they can kill you with a kiss. And, you know, if you look at all these sociological studies, um, like the Pew reports, um, which, which sort of like chronicle all these societal trends. Well, one of the arms of the Pew Research Foundation is the Jewish people. And what are the demographics of the Jewish people? And this has been reported quite a bit. And they they chronicle the levels of intermarriage, the levels of assimilation that are going on, especially in America. And millions of Jews are disappearing from the Jewish people. In the level of millions, millions. And it gives us a kind of a, a view of the kiss of Aesop, right? What happens when there's total acceptance? What happens when you don't have to cling to your identity because someone's trying to take it away from you? Do you still hold on to it? Or you don't need it anymore? What happens when everyone wants to promote you at your job and marry you and there's no neighborhood or country club or whatever it is or level of a corporation that you can advance to? No restaurant that won't serve you. (laughs) Whatever you order. See, psychologically, there's something called script-anti-script. You know what that is? That means that Oh, you don't want me to date that guy? I'm dating that guy. Right? You, Why do you do what you do? You do because you're told that you can't do that. So therefore, I'm going to do that. But throughout history, so many of the societies that we've lived in have been like, hey, you're not keeping the Torah. And it's like, oh, we're not keeping the Torah? Oh, yeah, we're keeping the Torah. But what happens when the society says, go ahead and keep the (laughs) Torah, who cares? Who cares? Then you go, oh, well, all of a sudden your anti-script disappears, right? And now all of a sudden, if you keep it, it's because you have to want to keep it and you have to know to keep it. When Napoleon was fighting with Russia, Napoleon had a new vision and he was going to offer the Jews citizenship. Now, (laughs) that might sound like a very basic right, very basic privilege, but that was a radical innovation in terms of what to do with Jews at the time. And this was part and parcel of the Enlightenment. And you would imagine that the Jewish leadership of the time would have embraced Napoleon's approach. Like, you know, we can now finally become full participants in secular society as well. The majority, the great majority of rabbis opposed Napoleon. Now, you would think that, wait a second, it should be the opposite. The great majority should have said, yay, finally, like someone who gets it, that we can be this... Tremendous force for good in society and everything like that. If you just let down these barriers and let us participate. And that's not what they said. And the reason why they didn't say it is because they said, you know what's going to happen? All the Jews are going to assimilate. And they were totally right. They were totally right. And we see based on just look, look at today's society. You you see the validation that their vision was right. Now, why this is so troublesome is because it shouldn't be this way. Getting back to this idea of script-anti-script, that we shouldn't be clinging to our traditions and to our mission just because someone says, oh, you can't do it. Oh, oh, we can't do it? We're going to show you that we can do it. Like, it shouldn't be a it shouldn't be like that. It should be that we are passionately committed to this vision. And to the extent that we don't have any obstacles, we can be even more effective in terms of our mission. Not that we should abandon our mission, you know, once someone tells us that, you know, hang out with us. So so you see a very contemporary, um, a very contemporary battle, so to speak, being waged right when Napoleon shows up to begin with. And, you know, it's so prescient what the, what the Rebbe's understood where the Jewish people were at. Now, again, there's only one way to battle this, through education and through joy. Knowledge and joy. Or I would even say, if you had to get rid of either knowledge or joy, or prioritize them, I would put joy first. Because when you feel good about yourself and you feel comfortable and secure and you feel like this is who I am and this is what I want to be and this is what I'm doing, that just cuts through everything. But the truth is, is that in today's day and age, I think most people can't get to that joy unless they understand what the mission is. And they can't get to the mission unless they've got a degree of education. So this is, why, this is why Talmud Torah, the study of Torah, is oxygen. It's absolutely oxygen. You know, ideally, you don't go a day without learning something. And there's so many books, I've mentioned them before, where they're like little axioms of Torah. Um, a, a great example of it is, is bringing heaven down to earth. 365 Meditations by the Lubavitcher Rebbe by Rabbi Tzvi Freeman. Great book. If you don't have it, buy this book. It's short, clear, very deep teachings that you can read. You can read one in less than a minute, 30 seconds, and it'll give you like spiritual vitamins for the entire day or longer. Right? So really, we need it every single day. Remember what I told you from Rabbi Wolfson, that, that he's, he gave this example about faith. He said, imagine going up to someone and, and asking them, did you eat breakfast today? And, and the person goes, no, I, I ate breakfast yesterday. <laughs> like, what, what, what good does it do you if you ate breakfast yesterday? Breakfast is only relevant if you ate it today. <laughs> That's the only way it's meaningful. So he says that the same thing is with faith. Faith has to be renewed every single day. And just to add to these words, people think that faith is something that you have or you don't have. Like a sofa. Do you own a sofa? I own a sofa. So what do I, I have to buy a sofa every day? Well, yeah. How am I going to enter into my apartment? I already have a sofa. I already have faith. Right? But that's, that is not analogous. Faith is not a sofa. Faith is not a possession that once you have it, you have it. Faith is something that has to be renewed every single day. And how do you renew it? Through Torah study. Right? Like we tend to think of faith as this incredibly abstract entity, like, oh, I wish I had faith. And how do you have so much faith? And, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It's this airy thing. It's not. It's not. It's a commodity that be, can be transacted. And the way faith is transacted is through Torah study. This is the kiss of Asif, where, I'll put it in shocking terms, where there's so much wealth and there's so much comfort. You know, a person can be strangled to death with a cashmere scarf. It's a little shocking, it's a little shocking. But it's, it's real, it's real. That luxury can just make you forget what it is that you're supposed to do to begin with. And every generation has its test. And I think one of the main tests that we're facing right now is the test of wealth, the test of acceptance. And how do you overcome that test? And now I want to say something very practical in terms of our own lives. You gotta, It's got to be through knowledge and through simcha, through joy. And I'll tell you, you know, the whole Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shemini Atzer, Simchas, Torah, the whole cycle, culminates with the seventh hakafa, the seventh dance on Simchat Torah Day around the Torah, right? With the Torahs, right? We're dancing the seventh last, that's the final dance. And I heard from Reb Shlomo the following. He said that the seventh hakafa, that last dance, which is the culmination of everything we're doing, is the fixing of the sin of the golden calf. And what's the connection? Because we danced around the golden calf. So let me just explain it in my own words. The last fixing, the last way that we're supposed to leave Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and enter the year is with this act on our part, answering this question. Where are you deriving your greatest joy in life? Where are you deriving your greatest joy in life? Is it through your relationship with God? Right? Or is it through the luxuries of this world? That's the question. And so we end the, holiday, the full holiday cycle with this dance with the Torah itself saying, this is my greatest joy. This is my greatest joy. My greatest joy is you, God. This is my greatest joy. And if that's a person's greatest joy, then at that point, they're ready to enter into the the year. Right? And everything that the year represents and all the forces of nature, all the forces of opposition, all the forces of incompletion, all the darkness. If you're leaving that that's your greatest joy in your life, then you're going to be able to drive through absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. And you will be triumphant, Absolutely everything. So that's what we end up, at least in this discussion, is the kiss evasive. If we can make our greatest joy, the one, the only one, because remember, on the deepest level, all that exists is God anyway. If we can just connect to that ultimate truth, but with joy, then we're going to make it. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.